Welcome to the Be Good Podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of Be Good, brought to you by the BVNUD Unit, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavior change. Every month, we get to speak with a leader in the field of behavioral science in order to get to know more about them, their work, and its application to emerging issues. My name is Eric Singler, founder of the BVNO Unit, and with me is my colleague, Scott Young. Hi, Eric. It's so great to be joining you, and I'm truly honored to introduce our guest today. On today's episode, we'll be speaking with Cass Sunstein. Cass is a world leader in behavioral science. He's a professor of law at Harvard Law School and the founder and director of the Program on Behavioral Economics and Public Policy at Harvard Law School. From 2009 to 2012, Cass was the administrator of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. He's also a prolific author, including the book Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth, and Happiness, which he co-authored with his friend and Nobel Prize winner Richard Thaler and has had an enormous impact in accelerating the application of behavioral science, particularly in the realm of government and public policy. Cass, I am especially honored to welcome you for at least two personal reasons. First, I met you some years ago when you were kind enough to be our keynote speaker at the first conference organized in France in 2017 on nudge and behavioral science. At that time, you played a key role in my country because we had the opportunity to meet President Macron's special advisor, Ismaël Emelien, together at l'Elysée. And now we have a behavioral science team in France created in 2018. Second, again, you were kind enough to write the preface of my last book, Nudge Management. So thanks for everything. And we are very happy and honored to have the opportunity of an in-depth conversation with you. Welcome, Cass. Uh, it's terrific to be here and uh, to be able to visit and participate a little bit in processes in France is a great honor. And uh, to be able to uh, say a little bit of accurate words about your extraordinary book, accurate meaning just pointing out you've written an extraordinary book, that was also a great honor. Cass, one thing that's very intriguing to me is how a law professor became very interested in behavioral science. Could you start by telling us a little bit of your own history on how you discovered the field and perhaps a little bit about how you met your friend Richard Thaler and how and why you decided to start working together? Yes. So uh, as a young law professor at the University of Chicago, I was surrounded by people who were greatly influenced by economics and people who had uh, several of them won Nobel Prizes. And uh, I was uh, skeptical of the idea that people were fully rational actors. Uh, I had been a literature major in college. And I think that informed my skepticism. In literature, people do things that aren't fully rational. They might show uh, not enough willpower, or they're focused on today and not the long term, or they ignore something important. That's what Voltaire and Shakespeare talked about. And why didn't economists talk about that? 
but I didn't really have tools by which to turn my uh, skepticism into something uh, useful. Uh, on in a locker room uh, in an athletic facility, I was speaking to a, a very distinguished economist and law professor about my skepticism about the idea that human beings were fully rational. And he said, you know, your skepticism has no justification and you're full of nonsense and you appear to be writing about this. And that's really a very, very bad idea. Uh, but there's someone who also has a bad idea a young economist at Cornell named Thaler. And he said, you should look up this very bad, useless economist and try to figure out uh, uh, what you have in common and why uh, you're making the same errors that he's making. Uh, so uh, I looked up Thaler and started reading uh, what he was doing. And it was like a light bulb went off in my mind. I thought this is extremely important and valuable. And I went from Thaler's work to Kahneman and Tversky's work uh, and thought, oh, man, there's a whole world of insight here that it would be very good to benefit from. And uh, I tried my best and wrote some papers, and uh, they became kind of early works in behavioral analysis of law and public policy. And then Thaler came to the University of Chicago, and that was, for me, a defining uh, change in life. Uh, we had lunch. I sent him a note saying, uh, why don't we have lunch? And we became fast friends. And he was actually working at the time on a paper with an economist and lawyer named Christine Joles on the topic of uh, behavioral economics and law. And he was going very slowly with the paper. And I kept asking him every lunch, Where's, when's that paper going to be out? When can I read that paper? And finally, I said to him, you know, if you don't write that paper, I'm going to, to do it. I've started writing one. And uh, mine won't be as good, but it will exist. And he looked at me and said, you know what, why don't you join our paper? And then the three of us wrote a lengthy paper together. And that was really the start of uh, now, you know, something like 15 or 20 year collaboration. Cass, could you tell us more about why you decided to write the book Nudge, which, as I mentioned before, has revolutionized the way a lot of public institutions are doing public policy? Yes. So uh, we had a lunch maybe, you know, uh, seven years before we wrote Nudge. And Thaler said he had been at a workshop where he was talking about some of the ideas in our previous paper, where he had a notion called, we're not pro-paternalism, but we're anti-anti-paternalism. And what we meant by anti-anti-paternalism is that many of the people who are object to paternalism, they're kind of stuck in the idea that people always make the best choices for themselves. And we think that foundation for anti-paternalism, which goes back to John Stuart Mill, uh, was not sound. Thaler said he was talking about that in a workshop, and the economists were giving him a very hard time. And he said, you know what? Uh, we're for libertarian paternalism. That was just a spur-of-the-moment response to a skeptical economist. And he said, do you think there's anything there that we should maybe try to write up? And uh, we wrote a very short paper for an economics journal and a very long paper for a law review, uh, both of which had libertarian paternalism in the title. 
And that paper, to our surprise, got a ton of attention, both among uh, law professors and among economists. So the law version was called Libertarian Paternalism is Not an Oxymoron, and that's doomed as a title of a paper. That paper should be a catastrophic failure. That's the worst imaginable title. And yet people were really interested in it. So a few years later, we thought, you know, maybe there's a book here. Maybe there's a, uh, a lot to say about approaches that are cognizant of human fallibility and that talk about tools you can use that preserve people's freedom, um, but that can help them. And in our little lunch, Thaler is not a, 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 a thrilled to write another book. It's not his favorite thing. He's more an article kind of a guy. Uh, anytime the question is raised, do you want to write a book? Uh, I start smiling. And so we were a very good team in the sense that uh, he has a lot of um, uh, quality control. That is, he doesn't want a sentence that he doesn't feel very comfortable with. And I have a lot of energy. I'll produce a lot of sentences. And then he can take out the ones that aren't good enough. Could you tell us a bit about your experience as the administrator of the OIRA and your work at the Obama White House? And first of all, could you tell us how you have met Barack Obama and tell us more about your nomination as the administrator of the OIRA and your work at the White House? Yes. So uh, uh, Barack Obama, as he used to be called, uh, was uh, first drawn to my attention by a colleague who said there's a young law student at Harvard whom we should consider at the University of Chicago for our faculty. And I said, what's his name? And he said, I remember this as if it was this morning. He said, you're not going to believe his name, Barack Obama. Now, it's a very familiar name, but at the time, it was just a really unusual name for, uh, you know, anyone in the United States. And he said, we should hire the guy. He's phenomenal. So when he came in uh, to maybe be hired, I met him. I liked him immediately. I thought he should uh you know, uh, go far in life. Uh, basically, after five minutes of meeting, he seemed like a natural leader as well as a great guy. And we became friends, you know, very quickly. And when he ran for the Senate and then the president, see, I was an informal advisor uh, as well as I tried to be, you know, I tried not to bother him a whole lot because the whole world was uh, on him. But if he wanted me to help him with anything, I'd be there in a heartbeat. Um, when he became president, the question became, what would I do in the new administration? And, you know, there are a lot of good jobs that anyone would be honored to have. And my first choice was the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, which amused many people. It's not a cabinet position. It's not, you know, the most famous job there is. But I knew from my law work, actually, that in six months in that position, you could do so much to help uh, the country and the world. Because what the job entails is you're overseeing all of uh, the regulatory apparatus of the government, including healthcare, pandemic response, you're playing a, a role in, and I 
worked on that in connection with some pandemics. Uh, with respect to um, clean air and clean water, uh, including the climate change problem, uh, civil rights, including discrimination on the basis of race and sex and sexual orientation. Uh, there are issues of national security and homeland security. What do you do with the airports? Uh, there are issues about highway safety and food safety. So the, uh, uh, the scope of the job is extremely wide and the chance to do something that would, you know, save 500 lives because of something you do on a Wednesday, it's really there. And I thought if I could have any job, that would be the one I would like. And what we were able to do, I was there for about four years, uh, did bear on uh, clean air policy, on uh, civil rights issues. I tried to uh, eliminate discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, uh, to do things to make the uh, workplace safer, uh, to do things to uh, reduce the risk that people would die from air pollution. And uh, I was very pleased to see the Trump administration released a report on the costs and benefits of regulations over the previous 10 years. And it showed that if you compare the benefits of regulations in the Obama period to the costs, we're talking somewhere in excess of 125 billion euros in benefits. And those involve, to some extent, purely economic savings. You know, cars are more fuel efficient, so cheaper to drive. To some extent, uh, to a major extent, uh, health benefits. And this is, uh, you know, it, it took uh, an extremely big team, and much of it's being continued under President Trump. We also, uh, by the president's direct uh, order to me, uh, did some things that involved nudging and behavioral science. Actually, that was a significant chunk of, of my job. And so we did things like um, automatically enroll poor children in meals, lunch and breakfast, for which they would otherwise have to apply. And 15 million kids are now uh, enjoying meals to which they're legally entitled uh, in significant part because of the shift from you have to apply to you're automatically enrolled. Uh, we did a lot to make um, credit card users uh, more informed about the uh, terms of their agreements. And data suggests that behaviorally informed approaches are saving consumers um, over $10 billion annually. And most of the savings are concentrated in people who don't have good credit ratings, tend to be people economically struggling. So that one seems to have been uh, basically, you know, the right direction to go. We did something to make airline fares more transparent uh, so that when people are buying an airline ticket, they see all the taxes and fees. And this was just a hunch that that would um, be very helpful to consumers. It would make airlines adjust their prices downwards so as not to see a big spike once consumers could see uh, the full costs. And the evidence suggests, this is very recent, the evidence suggests that work beyond our wildest dreams, really, in protecting consumers against very high airline prices. Now that they see the taxes and fees, the uh, prices went down. And all this, and you know, I could go on for uh, approximately seven hours. This is stuff that the apparatus of our government did, and it really 
uh, came in large part from a conversation in the Roosevelt Room, which is my favorite room in the White House, uh, right next to the Oval Office, where President Obama said to me, uh, you know, if, if it's gonna, really going to help people and going to have an impact and not going to hurt the economy, uh, do that. And the expression on his face was not as a friend. It was as a boss. He was, wasn't unfriendly, but he was telling me what to do. And Cass, what was your primary learning and takeaway from that experience? Uh, the big thing I learned, I think the number one thing, and this is just describing something that I didn't understand at all before, is the immense importance of getting public comment on what you're doing before you finalize things. So it's a little simple, but in uh, the world of law professors, and I think this is true internationally, people undervalue the importance of just asking the public, what do you think? So we did a bunch of proposals. Some of them were behaviorally informed, we thought. Some of them were more just mandates involving you know, the environment or worker protection. And comments would come in from companies, from labor unions, uh, from public interest organizations, from scientists, from social scientists that were in some cases self-serving, but in the vast majority of cases, informative. They tell us something we didn't know. So a company might say, you know, 70% of what you're doing is sensible, but 30% of it is dumb. And here's exactly why. It's going to have effects you didn't anticipate. And if they said 30% was dumb, it would be surprising if 30% really was dumb. But it would be inevitable that 5% to 10% was dumb. So they'd be telling us something that would redirect our, uh, our judgment. The second most important thing I learned, uh, and I really saw this close up, is the extraordinary importance of technical experts to seemingly political judgments. So they might be, and this is in a time of coronavirus kind of coming home, but I saw it on much more mundane stuff where there'd be some scientist who specialized, let's say, in uh, food safety who tell us on a Monday, this food safety protection effort is mistaken because the thing the government's trying to regulate is not dangerous. Don't do it. Or they'd say on a Friday, uh, you're being much too cautious with respect to this public health problem. The risks actually are a lot higher than the policy people and the ministry think. And I'm talking about scientists within the government who would say this. Or, so the Office of Scientists, Science and Technology po Policy, we have OSTP, it's called, became uh, some of my heroes, and they'll never make it in the newspapers. Also, other heroes were in the Council of Economic Advisors, which is an important government agency, but it's, it doesn't really have authority. It's more advisory. On economic questions, you know, how you think about something that has a significant economic impact. It may affect workers and labor unions. It may affect um, uh, automobile companies. Uh, there are often debates about the economic impact. I'm a lawyer. I admire and 
sometimes play an economist on TV, but I, I'm not one. I would I kind of developed a rule, which is if the Council of Economic Advisors says something about economics, that's gospel, meaning that's going to stick for the government. If other economists or other policy people have a different view on the economic issues, um, they're arguing against the gospel. And that's going to be hard. And I can't think of a single case where on an economic issue, the Council of Economic Advisors was overridden by someone else on my watch. And that's not because I did anything except adopt a rule which is they're the experts. Now, of course, they would talk with other experts and they might be convinced about something, uh, but their expertise, not on a political issue, not on abortion, not on civil rights, but on an economic issue, I learned, you know, we need uh, a very large place for the technical specialists. Do you have advice for other behavioral scientists who are trying to positively influence government and public policy? I do, which is two things, um, which are actually very different. One is we have a lot of learning in the world of behavioral science uh, that is uh, somewhere between very solid and solid. So we know, for example, if you switch from an opt-in policy to an opt-out policy, the participation rate is likely to go up very significantly. We know also that if you inform a public of what most people are doing, uh, that's highly likely to increase the number of people who are doing it. So if you say most people are wearing masks when they go outdoors in your community, it had better be true. But if it is true, telling people about it is likely to increase behavior. So those are two really solid findings. And in advising governments uh, to rely on what we know to be true for policies that can be rolled out, let's say, this afternoon, Uh, is is a quite good idea. Uh, the second advice is, and I say this with somewhat less enthusiasm than the median behavioral scientist, which is to say I say it with enthusiasm, but somewhat less enthusiasm, and I'll explain in a moment. So the second piece of advice, which is enthusiastic, just a little less, experiment. And here the idea is if you don't know what approach is going to Uh, increase, let's say, um, life-saving behavior or decrease uh, risky, dangerous behavior, try a, different, a couple of different approaches and see what you learn. Now, that has been very important for governments all over the world, uh, and so I am enthusiastic about it. Uh, I think the behavioral scientists have uh, somewhat underrated the importance of using what's clearly known, because often the payoff from that is quick and spectacular and mildly overrated uh, the value of experiments. Now, in government, uh, both have been underrated. So the governments I'm familiar with have not experimented enough and have not used enough in the way of behavioral insights. But if you have a problem, let's say it's highway deaths, 
we know a lot about what to do in every country. There's a big document from the U.S. Department of Transportation. Uh, it's something like 400 or 500 pages, which is about reducing highway deaths. And it just uses what we know. And if, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia or uh, uh, Germany used that, uh, we'd save lives in both countries. Uh, and that's just based on what we know. So I, I think often one of my friends in the government said uh, uh, two things, a very wise person. He says, uh, if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. And he also said, there's no tomorrow. And the experiments, I say, I, I love them and they've been essential, but they often have a very, uh, they're very slow burning. They're like a television drama that starts with, you know, something romantic or something menacing, and you really don't know what it is. And it's not until episode three that you find out. And uh, that can be essential. But to do something that has a fast impact, um, if, if you're highly confident that it's going to work, uh, you can make a lot of progress in a hurry. And I've been pleased to see that in some places during the pandemic, uh, some governments have used things we know about, you know, the importance of simplification or the importance of social norms, uh, the importance of making things easy for people. They've just uh, used that like in a week. And uh, experiments are ongoing. They're really important. But if you can save lives today, do that. One of the things that's been so impressive about your career is the sheer breadth of topics and challenges that you've addressed. You've already shared a little bit of your secret to being such a prolific author, uh, which seems to be a combination of curiosity, uh, passion, and energy. But I'm really curious uh, about your guiding principles when you choose topics or projects. Are you thinking in terms of influencing other people or is it primarily a question of following your own intellectual curiosity and interest? I don't know if this is a general phenomenon. I, I, I bet it is. Uh, there are some ideas or projects, aren't there, where all of us have something equivalent to a tingle in our neck? It might be a literal tingle. So there's, there are some things where it happens not a lot, maybe once a year, where I get the tingle. And that is um, a heuristic. We have a new heuristic we've invented, the tingle heuristic, which means do that. Uh, I'll, I'll give an example uh, from an obsession I've had over the last two years, which is that... Uh, people sometimes seek information and they sometimes don't. And one reason they don't is it's going to make them scared or sad. And that universal phenomenon uh, has produced a tingle for me because it both bears on public policy, what kind of information disclosure will be effective. People hate getting it. It's not likely to uh, be useful. 
what kind of information disclosure should be mandated. If you make people scared or sad, that might not be a reason not to disclose the information, or it's a sufficient reason not to disclose the information. But it is uh, a point against disclosure. And so uh, the idea of uh, when disclosure will produce positive or negative emotions, uh, the emotional uh, impact of telling people things, uh, that's, uh, to me, intriguing and puzzling. And it bears both on practice and it bears on kind of the fundamentals of what it means to be human. Think of the Garden of Eden. That's what it's about, really. Information seeking and the complexity. You can read the Garden of Eden story in, in, in multiple different ways, but at a minimum, it's a complex matter whether to get what you get when you unleash the tree of knowledge. And in an era in which it's possible to tell people, you know, you're likely to die in this year, or yes, you're probably going to get Alzheimer's, or if you do this, your risk of coming down with some problem is really low. Or if you date that person, it's probably not going to work out. Yes, you can tell people that that, that material. So that, that produces the tingle in me, and I got... I've been intrigued. I'm right in that right now. Um, to try to do something to have influence, to try to do something academic to have influence, I think is uh, unpromising. Uh, Samuel Johnson said, nothing is more doomed to failure than a scheme of merriment. <laughs> Meaning, we're going to have a great time now. That's not likely. Uh, merriment is often a byproduct of something else. You decide, you know, to have an event, and then you're going to do something, dance, and then, or read, or whatever. And then the merriment is a byproduct. I think having influence is typically not a product of wanting to have influence. It's a product of uh, being interested in something, or knowing something that other people find potentially valuable. So in the world of behavioral science, um, what's happened in multiple nations is a uh, product of people knowing things that have interested them that turn out to be useful. Cass, one issue of personal interest to me is polarization. And it strikes me that behavioral science has a great deal of value in diagnosing uh, some of the heuristics that are pulling people and societies apart. But I was wondering your perspective in terms of how behavioral science may be able to play a role in countering some of these forces and helping bring societies back together. Okay, so on the tingle and polarization, a number of years ago, I was involved in a project with Danny Kahneman about uh, jury behavior. And we did something asking individuals how outraged they are by certain forms of misconduct. We got a bunch of data. And people reacted to our paper, which we published, by saying, you're not talking about deliberating juries. It's just individuals. And we said, well, deliberating juries would be just the average or the median of the individual. And critics said, how do you know? That was a good question. 
So we tested it with a big project about groups, deliberating groups, and we found we were wrong, that uh, groups tend tend to end up more outraged than their individual members if they start out a little bit outraged. And if they're not at all outraged, they end up, you know, completely relaxed. So a case involving a baldness cure, people, to my surprise, people aren't a failed baldness cure. People think that's not such a big deal. We're only a little bit outraged. And then as groups, they don't care at all. They think that's nothing. A case where an exercise machine breaks down and injures old people, they start out outraged. And after they talk to each other, they end up wildly outraged. Okay, so that was a tingle finding. Uh, You and I share this completely. And the tingle was, oh, if people who agree with each other talk to each other, apparently they end up much more extreme. And uh, that little data involving how juries behave uh, um, got me attentive to behavioral work showing that this is a regularity and it bears on politics. So if you get people who think that, let's say the nation's leader is, is good, if they talk to each other, they'll think he's great. Or if you get a group of people who think he's doing a bad job, after they talk to each other, they'll think he's doing a terrible job. And since there are different groups who have different inclinations, their speaking to one another can produce very acute polarization. And we're observing that certainly in uh, Germany and uh in India and in the United States, all three. And whether the extreme adoration or the extreme antipathy is a good idea is a different question. But if it's just growing out of social interactions, uh, there's trouble in all countries, including democracies. So what can you do about it? Uh, I'll give you an idea that is connected with our discussion so far that's not uh, extremely popular, but it's give a big role for the technocrats. So let the experts figure things out when they are really factual questions and treat the polarization as background noise. So if the question is what's going to work with respect to a pandemic or occupational uh, health problems, You want the people who know to be doing the foundational work and then let, let's say, a democracy uh, assess whether this is, you know, in the end acceptable, but don't put it to something like a referendum. So to empower specialists is often a great safeguard against uh, polarization. I saw this close up where there were some things that were really uh, infuriating people or exciting people on the left and the right that were happening in our government. And so long as the, the people who really knew what they were doing were trying to figure out what to do, the fact that people were all upset with each other, it was like a TV show and not a very interesting one. And I think democracies need to be very open to that, especially when times are really tough, but even when they aren't so tough. Of course, in democracies, the people are ultimately in charge, but not the like-minded groups on either side who are charging themselves up. And they may be, you know, people who any one of us kind of identifies with, but if they're charging themselves up, uh, you know, they'd be block your ears.
The, the other idea is to find places where people who have different fundamental views are talking to each other in ways, in, in domains in which their political identity or affiliation isn't that salient. So there's a, a political scientist named James Fishkin who's pioneered something called the deliberative opinion poll, where he says, you know, to make policy by just calling people up on the phone and saying, what do you think about this problem? And then aggregating, that's kind of crazy. So he gets a bunch of people in a room with different points of view and gives them some information and asks them to talk it through. And that's less technocratic, but it's informed. And what emerges from the deliberative opinion poll, as he calls it, has a kind of authority that a mere survey wouldn't. And actually, the outcome of the deliberative opinion poll has affected policymaking in a number of places. Or you could, you know, be less um, formal about it and just create locations online or elsewhere where people get to know each other. Uh, and talk to each other about policy issues. Once you see that it's a human being who's mortal, uh, who has friends and family, uh, you'll probably learn something about them, which will make them more, uh, you know, human to you than you might otherwise. And you'll also learn either that their point of view is something from which you can learn from, or the very fact that they hold that point of view is something you can learn from. I found in Washington some of my you know, most productive interactions were with people who really didn't like President Obama, people who were very much right of center. They were, you know, I liked them, and I learned from them. And if they were concerned about something, they were either right or they had a reason that I'd that I'd better try to understand. Um, it might help with communication. It might help with uh, altering the policy. So we, we're badly in need, I think, of democracies in which people are getting together across political lines and uh, not able to dismiss as the person as saying, or that's one of them. Cass, another key topic thinking about behavioral science in the workplace. From your point of view, how could behavioral science learning be applied by your organization and the private sector? And for which type of question? Okay, that's a fantastic question. And we're really at the early stages of this. Uh, so one question is, how can managers help workplaces be a, more productive, and B, happier. And there's a relationship between the two. And we know a lot about what makes workers uh, distracted or miserable. And this is, broadly speaking, behavioral. And some of it is um, connected with what I find very exciting behavioral science research on, on well-being. So, We know if people feel humiliated or disrespected, uh, they're not going to have a very good day. If people feel that they have agency and control, that often makes them feel the day is going pretty well. Um, 
And there are things just with respect to agency and control versus uh, humiliation and stigma that any manager can use by introducing, if it's sincere, uh, statements of admiration or respect or gratitude into the workplace more frequently than maybe a busy manager would do. So this is just a behavioral point about um, workplace satisfaction. Now, with respect to performance, uh, there are things that interfere with productivity, such as being unhappy, uh, being distracted, not having a sense of agency and control, and that there are ways to do that. Um, we work with an organization in California uh, that is very actively involved in this, uh, that uses nudges actually to try to get workers and managers um, uh, have more well-being and more productivity. And they've done a great deal of work, uh, Humu it's called, in uh, spurring this with uh, demonstrable success. And uh, this can be done, you know, on a small scale by someone who's running a little business, or it can be done on a large scale by someone who's running one of the nation's large companies. And I've observed, uh, you know, in a kind of anecdotal way, uh, large companies either starting to use behavioral science uh, to nudge their people uh, in directions that make things work better uh, or, or be very systematic about it and scientific. And I think that is the way of the future. And it, it might sound to some a little um, uh, kind of uh, mechanical and scientistic in a not the best way. But if you think of it as a human enterprise where, you know, workers all over the world are, are, are having a tough time of it. And some of this is completely fixable, where something that gives them uh, power to decide how something's going to go can activate their, you know, the self that they're proudest of, or something which gives a mechanism by, by which someone whom they respect tells them that what you're doing is phenomenal. Uh, that can change change a month to be recognized in that way. Cass, we have been together as members of the Nudging for Good Awards that is organized every two years by the AIM, European Brands Association. For our listeners, the purpose of the Nudging for Good Awards is to promote the application of the nudge approach by the big consumer goods companies to help consumers adopt healthier and better choices. Cass, what do you think about this initiative? I've loved uh, what's being done with the Nudging for Good Awards. And I loved it before I was part of it. And then I was uh, lucky enough to be part of the jury. And I, I thought uh, this is really a way of the future. And there are a few things that are, you know, uh, uh, inspiring about this. One is there are companies all over Europe and increasingly the world who are using behavioral science uh, either to help people, could be workers, it could be customers, uh, or to help themselves. And frequently it's both. And that's the best. A company that is 
able to prosper and grow at the same time that it's improving the health and well-being of, uh, let's say, its own customers, or it's producing a, pro a new product that is going to be healthier or be um, more fun for people. Now, health is even better than fun, but both are really important. And what the Nudging for Good Awards do is um, recognize the best of the best. And by doing that, they create a, an incentive uh, to see much more in the world. And I've observed just informally that the public visibility of the Nudging for Good Awards uh, has gotten other companies to think, uh, can we do that? And can we do that maybe that'll make us a candidate for public recognition? So I, I hope we'll be seeing a lot of this all over the world. I've spent time in the recent future, recent past, and I hope to spend time in the coming soon future in uh, the United Arab Emirates and in Qatar and in India. These are countries which are um, keenly interested in using behavioral science and nudging uh, to help with issues of uh, public health, public safety, and uh, poverty reduction. And uh, to see the private sector, which is, of course, uh, larger in some countries than others, but exists in all countries, to see the private sector innovating here uh, is a very promising way forward, especially if you have local knowledge, as a company will, of what uh, customers are struggling as a result of or benefiting as a result of, and that can uh, uh, unleash creativity. Cass, what advice would you give to businesses and practitioners within these companies to help them infuse behavioral science thinking and learning within their organization? Well, the first thing I would do as an advisor, um, and I do do as an advisor, is ask a ton of questions. So uh, to get uh, clarity about what the current challenges are is a predicate for then offering any advice. But I'll give a stylized example. Uh, suppose um, I'll, I'll make up a, a hypothetical. Suppose Coca-Cola says, look, we want uh, to shift in a direction that will improve public health. Suppose Coca-Cola says we want to do well by our stockholders and we want to sell a lot of our products, but we want to move toward greater uh, public health and we want to be part of that. Okay, so there's a question, what are the product offerings now that are best on those dimension and why aren't they selling? And you might know that the reason they're not selling is, let's say, that there's a certain affect associated with them that is negative. And then you can work on that, the affective uh, connotation. So a behavioral heuristic is the affect heuristic uh, to market something in a way that triggers positive emotions is uh, helpful. Or you might know that the offerings that you give have certain default options in them that aren't very healthy. 
So it might be that when uh, teenagers get a package, let's say, I'm just making this up, from Coca-Cola, the default offerings in the package have a lot of sugar and have a lot of calories. Well, you can change the default offering. That could have a big impact. Or you could have a new product, let's say, that will be either a vending machine, which will have healthy offerings in it. Pepsi actually has completely done that. Uh, it has a vending machine called Hello Goodness, and it has now a whole project called Hello Goodness, which is behaviorally very smart. Uh, it uses the affect heuristic. Uh, and it, we're talking now about Coca-Cola, but it could do some similar things. It could work with social norms. So it could have an uh, advertising campaign that points out that people or people of certain demographic groups are increasingly purchasing these products. Now, if that's true, and it had better be true in order to say it, then it can, as uh, you know, so much data finds, be a uh, self-fulfilling prophecy. If you have another kind of company, let's say, that is uh, involved in producing toys for children, and we know something about what toys for children are potentially dangerous and what aren't, you can have uh, warnings and reminders. Uh, if you're a hospital, and I have worked with hospitals, there's a lot you can do uh, to get patients to adhere to medical, um, you know, uh, uh, prescriptions. And uh, 125,000 people die in my country every year because they don't do what the medicine, they don't take their medicines. But there's a lot you can do with reminders, with simplification, with habit building that can make that problem um, much less. So once you identify the problem, we have a bunch of solutions. And as noted, I've given kind of uh, off-the-rack evidence-based um, prescriptions, but you can also test. And for businesses to test is certainly a really good idea. And businesses often have more flexibility to test than, um, uh, than uh, governments do. And they can do it quickly. So I'll give another example. Suppose you're a travel agency and in a time when travel is restored to normalcy, uh, you want people traveling in a way that's environmentally better than the way that they are on average traveling. Uh, you can have the uh, environmentally friendly options be first, or you can have a green check mark next to them. And you can test in a hurry, given the sheer volume, which ones have the biggest impact. Cass, we're recording this session in mid-April of 2020, and there's obviously one enormous issue on everyone's mind, which is the coronavirus. And we'd love to hear your perspective on it. Now, there's a lot of questions we could ask. Uh, I think the one that comes top of mind, though, is where and how do you think the behavioral science community can have the greatest opportunity to help make a difference? Do you feel it lies in influencing governments and their response to the crisis or perhaps in nudging people and their personal behaviors? Well, if I had to pick one, I'd say working with governments uh, to promote better behavior so whatever the policy prescription is, let's say it's wash your hands a lot or stay at home or don't touch your face or stay six meters or whatever away from people. Uh, there are tools that can 
uh, make that more likely to happen. Um, to invoke, uh, you know, the, so the social norm, uh, wearing masks, to have prominent people wear masks, uh, to say very clearly that uh, masks are lifesavers for you and others. There's recent data suggesting, intriguingly, that um, it's more effective to tell people that the desirable behavior will ensure that they don't infect others or will reduce the risk that they will infect others than to tell them it will protect them themselves against the risk of infection. That's interesting. It's early to know whether that's solid, but it's an intriguing possibility uh, that the best way to get people to take precautionary behavior is to tell them, don't hurt other people, rather than to tell them, protect yourself. So uh, to think of what kind of tools of communication are, um, are helpful is something that we have data on and we need to compile more. I know I've been working informally with um, uh, international organizations which are doing a lot of testing of what works best and also taking off-the-rack ideas as I'm describing them. Uh, the uh, framework from the United Kingdom, the EAST framework, easy, attractive, social, timely, is completely transferable to the uh, coronavirus problem. I do think with respect to policy making generally, uh, to think constantly of what you get and what do you lose by various measures is a really good idea. And the data as we speak is suggestive that stay-at-home policies are very costly, and that's you know a problem. But that the public health benefits uh, amply justify them, at least in many nations in the period in which the virus is exploding. And so, to keep one's eye on the consequences of it, the various alternative approaches, with numbers to the extent possible is probably the foundation of the big questions, which are, you know, uh, uh, what kind of lockdown should be required or advised. Cass, now uh, looking to the future of behavioral economics, the behavioral scientist publication has recently asked the behavioral science community to write articles about the future of B. What is your vision of the future of our field? I think I declined to answer that question from uh, an email, and I'll give you the reason. That one of my great heroes is uh, Friedrich Hayek, who's uh, you know, a great critic of centralized planning. And I, I think of Hayek, who's you know politically associated with the right, as I'm not. But I think Hayek's great insight is that the desires and knowledge of individuals is extremely dispersed, and a central planner is going to find it very challenging to have as much information as they have. Now, I think that's associated with the view that... Um, Uh, as a famous baseball player once said, predictions are difficult, especially about the future. And the 
challenge here, which is, I think, uh, a joyful one rather than a dispiriting one, is that where behavioral science is going to go, uh, as in you know, where biology is going to go or psychology is going to go, is going to be the product first of uh, individual minds that locate something really important that if we knew it was going to happen, it would have happened already, or individual minds interacting with each other through serendipity, like Kahneman and Tversky, maybe not as world transforming as that, but I'm going to emphasize and stick with the word like, like Kahneman and Tversky. Two people right now are in a place where they are going to talk and there's going to be synergy and something really surprising is going to happen. And if we could anticipate it again, we'd know it. We don't. So I'll give you an example of an idea that I think has this feature, which is both uh, powerfully important and I think underused. And that's the idea of cognitive scarcity, which came from a collaboration by Sendhil Nathan, the economist, and Eldar Shafir, the psychologist, I'm reasonably confident that their own collaboration on this came as a result of happenstance and accident. And what they say is, you know, very, very powerful insight that certainly I didn't see when writing Nudge, is that if you are sick, old, lonely, busy, or poor, your mental bandwidth is really limited. And that that has massive implications for companies and also for governments, that often what a company is doing, you know, a large international company, Toyota, I like Toyota, I have a Toyota, what they're doing is insufficiently attuned to the cognitive scarcity of its purchasers. And that will cause its marketing and its product to be less good than it would otherwise be even though Toyota's really good on marketing and, in my view, on products. And for governments, which are having policies, uh, uh, they're often not focused on the limited cognitive uh, capacity. Not people are stupid. They just don't have unlimited processing power. So if they're asked to fill out forms or to wait in lines or to manage some administrative burden, that might be devastating. And they didn't see that. I think the area of limited attention and cognitive scarcity, now I'm uh, contradicting my principle number one, which is predictions are very hard, especially about the future. That's a growth area for theory. The closest thing we have to a unifying account of behavioral biases is about behavioral attention. And you can fit a lot of what we have learned about present bias or about the power of default rules or even about unrealistic optimism or about the availability heuristic, you can fit a lot of this under the general rubric of behavioral inattention. And that is closely associated with scarcity, which manifests itself particularly in people who have you know, a disability of one or another kind, maybe they're struggling with depression or anxiety, or maybe they're elderly, or maybe they're female, and they have to bear the household burdens 
which means their capacity to navigate something else is reduced because they're dealing with kids. Uh, this is conceptually, I think, a very rich area for uh, academic work, both theoretical and empirical. And if I had one area for uh, governments to focus on, as well as for companies, it would start from the foundation. People's capacity to attend to anything is somewhere between 10 and 50% less than you think. Thanks, Cass. Very insightful. Cass, final question. You are one of the most influential thinkers in the world. You have written a lot of books. You have been an influential advisor at the White House, a professor at one of the major universities in the world, and have made a lot of conferences all around the world. Do you think you have a mission in life? Well, I do think that if there's, it's going to be a little sentimental, but if there's anything one can do in a day that is helpful to our human brothers and sisters, and as a dog lover, I'd say our canine cousins, that's a pretty good day. Well, as a fellow dog owner and dog lover, I certainly am in agreement with that sentiment. And it's also a very nice, positive note uh, on which for us to conclude today. So Cass, I'd really like to wrap things up by thanking you so very much for spending your time and sharing your thoughts with us and our listeners. And I'd just like to see if there are any final comments you'd like to share with everyone. Well, I will tell you my current... Uh aspiration, which is to write a little book called Sludge, where sludge is frictions or administrative burdens or paperwork or reporting requirements that uh, the private or public sector imposes on people that cause shocking damage. And I'm focused on this right now because the United States has quietly started a war on sludge because of coronavirus. So it's like we're seeing sprouts of trees everywhere. When the trees cut out sludge, it might come from a program that's an anti-poverty program where people don't have to wade through the sludge as much, or it might be about access to health care where telehealth or telemedicine is now suddenly available. Or it might be automaticity, where people who are entitled to economic relief don't have to apply. It just shows up in their bank account. And this uh, uh, war on sludge that the pandemic is producing is uncoordinated, meaning it's just a bunch of people independently, public officials, making what I think is a sensible choice. Uh, but the war on sludge should be uh, a long-during affair rather than just a matter of a one-night stand. Be Good, a podcast by the BVA Nudge Unit.